0: Welcome to Tom Bradfords Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number fifty-one, the book of Matthew, chapter fourteen. The first dozen verses of Matthew chapter fourteen brings us back to the subject of John the Immerser, more specifically going to tell us about his death. Uh, That he was in prison, well, that was already established back in uh, chapter 11. Now chapter 14 begins by explaining the circumstances behind his arrest, his imprisonment, and finally his execution. Now as a short sort of side note, something to remember when we read of the various New Testament Bible characters going to jail. It is not that at that time, jail was itself the punishment. That is, it was not usual that someone would be arrested, tried, and have a sentence handed down to spend a certain amount of time in prison, as is the norm in the modern West. The norm then was that a person was arrested and put in jail in order to await trial or to just kind of remove that person from society for a while even if no crime had been committed. That a person might languish in prison for a year or more while the wheels of justice spun slowly wasn't at all unusual. A person accused and convicted of a capital offense? well. Immediately upon trial and conviction, they'd be killed. person accused and convicted of a non-capital offense more often served as someone's slave or was put to hard labor for the government, usually, as a punishment. Now, the point is that once John was arrested and he was thrown in jail, he knew... What his fate would likely be. He just didn't know the exact means of his end or when it was going to happen. Now, Yeshua, on the other hand, at the same time, he was a free man, although he had become such a controversial figure among the synagogue authority that his fate, well, wasn't hard to predict. He hasn't seemed to have started to cause trouble yet with the temple authority and its priests it's coming in fact the tract he was on was going to prove to be quite similar to what happened to John so open your bibles let's read Matthew chapter 14 together we're going to read all of it Matthew chapter 14 it's not a long chapter follow along with me Around that time, Herod, the regional governor, heard of the fame of Yeshua and said to his attendants, This must be Yochanan the immerser, John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had arrested Yochanan, put him in chains, thrown him in prison because of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip since Jochanan had told herod it violates the torah for you to have her as your wife now herod had wanted to put Jochanan to death but he was afraid of the people in whose eyes yohanan was a prophet however at herod's birthday celebration herodias's daughter danced before the company and pleased herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked prompted by her mother she said give me here on a platter the head of yochanan the immerser the king became deeply upset but out of regard for the oath he had sworn before his dinner guests he ordered that her wish be granted and he sent and he had yochanan beheaded in prison now the head was brought on a platter to the girl she gave it to her mother yochanan's Helmidim, his disciples, came and took the body, and they buried it, and then they went and told Yeshua. Now on hearing about this, Yeshua left in a boat to be by himself in the wilderness. But the people learned of it, and they followed him from the towns by land. So when he came ashore, he saw a huge crowd, and filled with compassion for them, he healed those who were sick. As evening approached. The Talmudim came to him and said, This is a remote place. It's getting late. Send those crowds away so they can go and buy food for themselves in the villages. But Yeshua replied, They don't need to go away. Give them something to eat yourselves. Well, all All we have with us, they said, is five loaves of bread and two fish. He said, Bring them here to me. After instructing the crowds to sit down on the grass, he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up towards heaven, made a bercha. And when he broke the loaves and gave them to the Talmudim, he gave them to the crowds, and they all ate as much as they wanted. They took up twelve baskets full of the pieces left over. Those eating numbered about five thousand men plus women and children. Now immediately he had to tell medim get in the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away and after he had sent the crowds away he went up to the hills by himself to pray night came on he was there alone but by this time the boat was several miles from shore battling a rough sea and a headwind around four in the morning he came towards them walking on the lake and when the talmudim saw him walking on the lake they were terrified it's a ghost they screamed with fear but at once yeshua spoke to them courage he said it's i stop being afraid then Kepha peter called him and said lord if it's really you tell me to come to you on the water come he said so Kepha, got out of the boat, and walked on the water towards Yeshua. But when he saw the wind, he became afraid. And as he began to sink, he yelled, Lord, save me! Yeshua immediately stretched out his hand, took hold of him, and said to him, Oh, such little trust. Why did you doubt? And they went up into the boat, the wind ceased, and the men in the boat fell down before him and exclaimed, You really are God's son. And having made the crossing, they landed at Guinnessar, and when the people of the place recognized him, they sent word throughout the neighborhood and brought him everyone who was ill. They begged him that the sick people might only touch the tzitzit on his robe, and all who touched it were completely healed." Now this story about John the Baptist's execution is also told in Mark. Mark 6:14 through29. and Mark adds some information. It's not contained in, in Matthew 14. But at the same time, Matthew's information is in a couple of instances, slightly different than Mark's. Now I think Mark adds enough that before we begin to seriously examine this account, we should read his version of it first. So open your Bibles to Mark chapter six. Mark chapter 6. And we are going to read verses 14 through 29. Just 14 through 29. Follow along with me. Mark chapter 6, starting at verse 14. Meanwhile, King Herod heard about this, for Yeshua's reputation had spread. Some were saying, Yoharan the immerser, John the Baptist, has been raised from the dead that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him others said it's elial it's elijah and still others said he is a prophet like one of the old prophets but when herod heard about it he said yochanan whom i beheaded has been raised for herod has sent and had yochanan arrested and chained in prison because of herodias the wife of his brother philip herod had married her But Yochanan had told him, it violates the Torah for you to marry your brother's wife. So Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted him put to death. But this she could not accomplish, because Herod stood in awe of Yochanan and protected him, for he knew that he was a tzaddik, a holy man. And whenever he heard him, he became deeply disturbed, yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportunity came. Herod gave a banquet on his birthday for his nobles and officers and the leading men of the Galil, the Galilee. The daughter of Herodias came in and danced, and she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you want, I'll give it to you. And he made a vow to her, whatever you ask me, I'll give to you up to half of my kingdom so she went out and said to her mother what should I ask for she said the head of Yohanan the Immerser At once the daughter hurried back to the king and announced her request I want you to give me right now on a platter the head of Yohanan the Immerser Herod was appalled but out of regard for the oaths that he had sworn before his dinner guest he didn't want to break his word to her so the king immediately sent a soldier from his personal guard, with orders to bring Yochanan's head. The soldier went and beheaded Yochanan in prison, brought his head on a platter, gave it to the girl. The girl gave it to her mother. When Yochanan's Talmudim, his disciples heard of it, they came and took the body and laid it in a grave. Okay, now there's several arguments Put up by bible historians against the account of john's death in matthew and mark which they say that while john's execution is authentic history the account as found in the gospels is more than questionable it leans more towards myth and legend but see that's what happens When some academics do not have the respect they ought to have for the Bible's accuracy. And instead, they inject their own personal opinions. They also tend to nitpick, and it's usually the wrong things, and not allow for common conversational expressions within a first century Jewish cultural setting to be taken for what they are. So verse 1 of Matthew, which corresponds to verse 14, Mark 6, represents just such a tempest in a teapot. Matthew refers to Herod as Tetrarchus, That's, that's Greek, while Mark refers to him as Basileus, which means king in Greek. Now, this indeed can cause a lot of confusion among readers, because now one must wonder which of the several Herods This is speaking about, see, King Herod, King Herod. This is a title used for Herod the Great, the one who hosted the stargazers from Babylon as they searched for the new king of the Jews, the infant Yeshua. But the Herod in our current story is Herod Antipas, Herod the Great's son, and he was never a king. So why does Mark call him king? Well, first, the Greek uh, basileus doesn't have to mean king. It can just mean a leader of people. It can mean a commander. It's a rather generic word. It doesn't have to be rendered as a title of any official position or office. Second of all, Herod Antipas wanted to be called king and often insisted upon it, this to the irritation of the Roman government. In fact, he pushed so hard to be given the title of king that Emperor Caligula removed him from office and banished him. See, Antipas was a tetrarch. He was a ruler over a region. And his region at the time of our story was Galilee and Perea. Herod the Great was dead, and Rome had divided his territory into four regions, hence the term Tetra. Thus, a tetrarch was a ruler over one-fourth. So Herod Antipas was only starting to hear about this Jesus fellow, but it was after the time that he had ordered John the Baptist executed. Herod wondered if this was some sort of a reappearance of the dead John the Baptist, but just in another form. And he owed this to the miracle powers that he seems to think John had, that in some way or another got transferred over to Christ. And while Matthew puts this thought as being owned by Herod Antipas, Mark makes it, that people in general who had herod's ear thought this might be the case now these same people also speculated to herod that perhaps yeshua was elijah or one of the other prophets of old i mean it's hard to know for certain what to make of all this i mean i think that while we must take this literally in the sense that this is exactly what people were saying and what they were wondering, we must also realize that Herod, and, no doubt, his closest advisors held some very strange and irrational views about things that were common in that era. And while Herod the Great and therefore his sons, like Herod Antipas, claimed to be Jews, they weren't. And while they claimed to follow the religion of the Jews, they didn't. See, these thoughts they had about who Yeshua was, where his powers came from, were mostly superstitions. I find that Origen, writing in the early 200s AD, seems to have some real knowledge about these views that the Jews of the first century held on death and resurrection and the condition of the soul. Now, I'm going to quote from his commentary on Matthew regarding this issue because we find in it the connections between John, Elijah, and Jesus to have been rather mysterious, not easy to grasp. Now, after explaining the different views Jews held on resurrection, resurrection, Origen explains the matter now of the soul. I'll begin the quote we must now therefore inquire about the opinion regarding the soul which was mistakenly held by Herod and some from among the people that ran something like this John who a little earlier had been slain by him had risen from the dead after he had been beheaded and this person who had risen was the same person under a different name the one now called Jesus Herod imagined that Jesus possessed the same powers that formerly worked in John. And if the powers that worked in John had passed over to Jesus, Jesus was thought by some to actually be John the Baptist. The return of Elijah fueled this idea. Here is that line of argument. It was the spirit and power of Elijah that had returned in John. Christ said of John, this is the Elijah who is to come the spirit in Elijah possessed the power to go into John so Herod thought that the powers John worked in baptism and teaching had a miraculous effect in Jesus even though John did not do miracles it may be said that something of this kind was the underlying thought of those who said that Elijah had appeared in Jesus or that one of the old prophets had arisen See What I find interesting in this implication is that Herod and others thought that John the Baptist was a miracle worker who could heal and do other things. There is no biblical record of him ever doing a miracle or having the ability to do so. Yet, according to two Gospel accounts, Herod certainly thought of John as a Sodic, a Jewish holy man, almost certainly because of rumors and false assumptions about him that made john seem like a possible threat to herod's power and authority yeshua was suffering from these same kind of suspicions aimed at john only for christ those suspicions were coming from the jewish religious authorities who saw him as a threat to their religious authority and power now, therefore, according to Origin, Herod's in Herod's mind, Yeshua's abilities, knowledge of which necessarily came to him secondhand, made him wary that John may have risen from the dead, and this prospect thoroughly frightened him. But why did others think? that perhaps Yeshua was Elijah or some other old prophet. Well, it's because prophets, especially Elijah, were so highly revered in Jewish culture. And this was well known even among the local pagans. The prophets were so highly thought of that they were seen as spiritual giants. Spiritual giants that may well have possessed special God-given power. Elijah was so, also a, a, an especially mysterious man who was said to have never died, but rather he ascended alive up to heaven in a whirlwind. That of itself made him pretty unique, if not bizarre. And there were well-known prophecies that were accepted among the jews that said elijah would return in fact in matthew 11 we hear this thought of elijah's return and him inhabiting a person coming from no less than christ matthew 11:13 13-14 for all the prophets in the torah prophesied until yochanan until john indeed if you were willing to accept it He is Elijah, whose coming was predicted. See, we need to grasp that even if the Romans and their lackeys didn't necessarily believe all these mysterious prophecies about the great Hebrew prophets of old, especially about Elijah, that he would return from the dead, they knew that the Jewish people they ruled over certainly believed it and such a return would have given that person a tremendous following of what would have been Jews filled with a fanatic religious fervor and many Jews meaning the zealots and they were already itching for a rebellion see this is the last thing that Rome or any petty ruler like Antipas wanted it represented real trouble See, Rome measured the success of their assembly of governors and small-time rulers within the Roman Empire based upon their ability to keep the lid on trouble, to maintain the peace in their territory. So arresting and executing anyone who had the potential to unsettle things, no matter whether that threat was real or imagined, That was standard operating procedure for many of these governors and rulers. John the Immerser seems to have fallen into this potential troublemaker category for Herod Antipas. Well, what finally caused Herod to move against the Baptist was when John publicly condemned Herod's marriage to Herodias. Now, most Bible versions have it, as John calling the marriage, unlawful. The complete Jewish Bible has John saying it violates the Torah. This is the most correct interpretation. While it is true that the Greek term, ou existi, which just literally means not lawful, The most important issue is, and we've got to think about this, step back for a second, what law code is it that John is accusing Herod of breaking? What law code? certainly wasn't against the law in the Roman law code. Besides, as long as it did not negatively affect the empire, Herod could do pretty much whatever he wanted. Rather, the law that John was referring to could only have been the law of Moses, the Torah. I mean, indeed, what Herod did was not lawful according to the Torah. Leviticus 20, verse 21. If a man takes his brother's wife, its uncleanness, he has disgraced his brother sexually, they will be childless. See, it's not so much that Herod Antipas married his brother Philip's wife. It is that this happened while Philip was still living. According to the Law of Moses, a man could marry his deceased brother's wife. In some cases, he was obligated to do so. But one also has to wonder, whatever possessed John to make such a public ruckus over this happening. I mean, could he really have thought that such a verbal attack was going to go unpunished? I mean, there are a few Bible commentators who say that John was intentionally playing out Christ's words of Matthew 10. You know, there's a short lesson that emerges from this. So here's, here's what Christ said. In Matthew 10, verses 26 through 28, he said, "'So do not fear them, for there is nothing covered "'that will not be uncovered, or hidden "'that will not be known. "'What I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. "'What I have whispered in your ear, "'proclaim on the housetops. "'Do not fear those who kill the body, "'but are powerless to kill the soul. "'Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul "'and body in Gehenom. Now, I don't know that John ever heard Yeshua mouth those words. But if what he thought he was doing by drawing attention to the illicit nature of Herod Antipas' marriage to his living brother's wife was obeying this principle, I think he got it wrong. You know, (laughs) as believers, God has not given it to us as our jobs to stand on the rooftops and shout whenever we see something happening that we believe is a sin. wisdom and temperance are to harness these tongues there is a time to speak up there's also time to remain silent there is so much sin swirling around us every hour every day in every imaginable way that if we were to put we thought we were put on earth to point it out and condemn those committing it people, including our believing friends, would tire of us pretty quickly. I mean, few Jews of Yeshua's day thought of the Herod family as the true Jews they claimed to be, but they weren't, and they didn't take such a notion seriously. They knew the royal family were playing a role in order to try to legitimize their rule over Jewish people as essentially one of them. Uh, Certainly some of the higher-ups of the temple authority played along with this fiction because it was to their advantage to do so. But it's well recorded that among common, common Jewish society they detested Herod the Great and all of his offspring. So it's one thing to recognize sin in someone, it's quite another to publicly denounce them for it. I cannot help but think that John was a pretty hot-tempered guy who just didn't know when to rein in his mouth. Now, we're told in verse 5 that Herod had been wanting to have John killed, but he decided he dare not do so because the Immerser was revered by the common folk. In other words, Herod Antipas made a political calculation. Josephus makes it clear that Herod did not want John dead because John was popular enough that it could foment rebellion. And when John went so far as to openly denounce Herod's marriage, well, it not only proved to Herod that this guy was fearless, willing to take on a powerful ruler, such as himself and this made the baptist all the more dangerous so at first herod merely had him arrested and kind of held for a long time he wanted to kill him but he was enough of a politician to know that to do so would probably make john a martyr perhaps making him more of a threat dead than alive but something finally happened to force his hand. It was at a lavish birthday party for Herod Antipas that he asked for the daughter of his new wife, Herodias, to dance before him and his guests. Now, in those days, such dancing was usually less about artistry and more about playing to the sexual lusts of the men. Some might think that we pretty far out of bounds for a ruler to use his daughter. In such a lewd way but she was not his flesh and blood this was his stepdaughter and this was the wicked herod herod was so pleased with what he saw no doubt how his guests reacted he decided he was going to show off so he brought her near to him and asked her to name anything she wanted he'd give it to her up to half his kingdom he says here is one of those statements that academics scoff at and say, this can only be myth and legend. It is absurd to accept that any wealthy ruler would offer a girl half of his entire kingdom just because she danced for him. So Matthew and Mark must have, they have to have this wrong by quoting from some silly Jewish tradition. Not so fast. In Esther, chapter 5, starting with verse 1, On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner courtyard of the king's palace opposite the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the king's hall across from the entrance to the hall. And when the king saw Esther, the queen, standing in the courtyard, she won his favor. So the king extended the gold scepter in his hand towards Esther. Esther approached and touched the tip of his scepter. What is it you want? Queen Esther, the king asked. Whatever you request, Up to half my kingdom i'll give to you does anyone think the king of persia was serious about giving this poor jewish girl esther half of his kingdom i haven't heard an academic questioning that statement that is nearly identical to the one we read coming from the mouth of herod so are we to perceive herod's stepdaughter as some deranged, bloodthirsty savage that rather than receiving half the value of everything Herod possesses, that instead she preferred a grotesque, severed head served her on a plate." Is that what we're to think? The point's this. No doubt, half the kingdom is an expression. It wasn't meant nor taken literally. It was an exaggeration built into a well-known and ancient idiom that merely means that the one offering this great rewards in a generous mood. Super pleased with this person standing before him. I suspect that should some poor, naive soul ever try to take advantage of such an offer and ask for too much, humiliating the king, they wouldn't live long enough to ever receive it. Well, the stepdaughter responds to Herod, Herod's offer by asking for John the Baptist to immediately be beheaded and his head brought into this festive birthday gathering. I mean, was this something she desperately wanted? No. It was her mother that really asked for it because she was the other half of that marriage that John had denounced, and apparently she felt the sting of it. Herodias merely used her daughter's young beauty and persuasiveness to get what she wanted. In fact, when John's head is brought to the girl, she immediately hands it over to her mother. I would. But Herod was stuck. He had just publicly offered this girl anything she wants, even making a vow to follow through. And he had done it mainly to impress the many dignitaries who came to honor him. He's in a bind. Regardless of why he might do it, killing John would be a dicey thing that could have serious repercussions for him personally. John's followers, and who knew how many there there were, could erupt in righteous anger and throw his region into riots and chaos which would, in turn, get him into hot water with Rome. On the other hand, it would now be too great of a humiliation not to do it after making such a rash vow. Although we can be certain he had no inkling that John's life would be the result. Now, don't add any religious significance to Herod's vow. He was not at all concerned with going back on an oath to God. That is, what God might do to him if he didn't follow through. This is not another Jephthah story of a man sorrowfully carrying through with a rash vow made before God that, in his case, wound up costing his poor innocent daughter her life. So dedicated was he to carry out his vow no matter what the cost. See, the issue for Herod was political and social, it was about saving face before the elite of society and nothing else. Well, finally, in verse 12, we're informed that after the beheading, some of John's disciples were told of it, and they came for the corpse. Now, recall that John apparently had a steady stream of visitors to his prison cell in Macherus, which was one of Herod the Great's several fortress cities. And back in chapter 11, we read of disciples of John, who were with him while he was in jail, taking a message on his behalf to Yeshua. The reality of being prison in those days was that it was expected that family and friends would bring food for the prisoner, often daily. Otherwise, eating occurred only sporadically and prisoners would just regularly waste away. Now, I suspect that very likely some of those disciples were there when John was abruptly taken from his cell and killed. Nonetheless, they took John's body, they buried it, probably the same day, so that was Jewish custom, and then they went and informed Yeshua of what happened to his cousin. Now, it's important to note that despite Yeshua's expanding ministry and his growing number of followers, John the Baptist, well, he still had his own separate, loyal group of disciples. In fact, when we read in the book of Acts, chapter 19, this is some decades later, during Paul's day, that disciples of John remained as a separate and identifiable group. Some of them still not understanding entirely who Yeshua was, nor did they know of the revelation of the Holy Spirit for believers. Sometimes, you know, a lot of time has to pass. before God's revelations can be fully embraced within His worshipers. even for those who are diligently and sincerely looking for the truth. Verse 13, Upon hearing of John's death, Yeshua determined he needed a little time alone, so He went out onto the lake on a boat. Now, we're not to imagine that he sailed to a desert wilderness. This is so often translated. He was on the Sea of Galilee. There wasn't any desert near to where he was. What we're to understand is, what we're to understand is he's trying to get to a deserted place somewhere around the, the rim of the lake. where there just weren't any people. That didn't work people found out where he was going they simply walked in mass around the lake to join him the way matthew's way matthew words it pretty clearly yeshua was wanting some personal time to grieve over john to to contemplate what this all might mean i mean after all herod antipas seemed to think that Yeshua may well have been a revivified John the Baptist. However strange that may seem to us, this could well present an immediate danger for Christ. Well, as Yeshua's reputation swelled, so did the numbers seeking after him. Thus the adjective huge is added to the word crowd. However, in verse 14, we must not spiritualize The reality of the situation the multitudes were not clamoring after him as their messiah nor were they seeking him for salvation to them he was still this amazing saddick that could heal anyone of anything and they were not about to miss their opportunity that only came along rarely and as verse 14 states when they found him despite him not wanting to be found he of course understood their need he set aside his grieving and his trepidations and in compassion he healed those who were ill of their infirmities now we must not imagine that everyone in the crowd wanted or needed healing rather families and friends accompanied those weak from illness the blind the lame no doubt in the crowd, there were just some fascinated onlookers. Well, after a day of miracle healings, Christ's disciples show up. It's the evening that the disciples ask Yeshua to just end his healings, send the people away from this deserted area so they can buy food from local villages for their supper. Now, this is in no way a cruel or uncaring request. It was just a practical one. After all, as verse 21 says, the crowd, the multitude that had come for healing, had grown to 5,000 men plus women and children. So despite the title for this event that we'll traditionally read in commentaries about the feeding of the 5,000, there were far more people there present. I suspect the low end would have been 10,000, and they all needed to eat not because they were starving but rather because it was meal time and they were getting hungry but their master tells the disciples not to send the people off to buy food for themselves but rather they the disciples they are to feed them and the disciples respond incredulously they say hey all we have with us is five loaves of bread and a couple of fish In other words, they brought provision enough for themselves and no one else, which again, was not being selfish, it was just doing what was was responsible and natural. See, the signal that a miracle is about to happen is when Yeshua points to the food items and He says, bring them here to Me. This was not the first time in the Bible that the feeding of a large crowd beyond what little is available is recorded. In 2 Kings chapter 4, we read this, starting at verse 42 A man came from, uh, from Baal shah bringing the man of God 20 loaves of bread made from the barley first fruits and fresh ears of grain in a sack. Elisha, Elisha uh, said this Give this to the people to eat. And a servant said, How am I to serve this to a hundred men? Give it to the people to eat. For Adonai says they will eat and have some left over. So he served them, and they ate, and they had some left over, as Adonai had said. So the prophet Elisha got a word from God that the insufficient amount of food for a hundred men would be so miraculously multiplied they would eat their fill and still have some left over. And this can probably be attached to the miracle of more than enough manna raining down on the three million or so Israelites all during their 40 years in the wilderness. See, we're... Take a little pause here. See, we are meant to notice the importance of food all throughout the Bible. The importance of food. And therefore, the divine provision for it. See, in the creation story, god had food in the form of plants ready for the moment that he would create that first human and then the second and after the law of the seventh day as a day of rest was established the next law god made concerned food remember adam and eve could eat freely of everything in the garden except for the fruit of that one particular tree the tree of knowledge of good and evil Later, after the Great Flood, God expanded the permissible human diet to include certain animals. Later still, at Mount Sinai, God instructed Moses about food by giving him a whole list of permissible and prohibited things that people could eat, which also included instructions about keeping these food items from becoming inedible due to contamination, the laws of clean and unclean you know a few decades ago the lord impressed upon me the important place that the human consumption of food holds in his economy see this overriding concern about food began at creation it continues to this very day see I was so convicted about my lack of recognition of this unequivocal biblical fact and that i had for the majority of my life paid no attention to god's instructions to his worshipers about the food we eat it just fell upon me like thunder and i immediately changed to eat biblically kosher institutional christianity has taken it upon itself to suspend god's foods laws by saying that when christ came it was the end Of any rules or of god's divine will concerning food that is the doctrine is that god's concern about what we eat went from paramount to vanished i'm here to tell you that yeshua has already made it abundantly clear that none of god's laws were changed or abolished at his advent and from the lord's perspective, you know, food laws are kind of useless if there's not enough for the people to eat. So what permissible food is for humans, and the sufficient provision of it, are central to God's will, even to his character. All Jesus is doing is demonstrating this reality, yet again, And perhaps His miracle of feeding the multitudes at the Sea of Galilee involved an element of both remembrance of past provision and hope for the future provision of god Worshipers, as expressed by the wedding banquet of the Lamb. Now as we read all the Gospels, we see Yeshua always urging folks to feed the hungry. And when he told Peter and others to feed his sheep, he meant it on two levels. On the Peshat level, he meant it quite simply and literally. Whenever people you encounter are hungry, feed them as an extension of what Yeshua would do if he were there. On the remez level, he tells us men don't live on bread alone, food, but also on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So feeding his sheep also means to instruct them in God's divine word as an act of compassion. So feeding his sheep is a very important thing on two levels, and it's the responsibility, it's the duty of all Christ followers. The remez did not replace the Peshat. Therefore, in a demonstration of this, that his disciples were certain to remember the rest of their lives, impresses us to this day. The meager basket of five loaves and two fishers sat down before Christ. And verse 15 explains that first, the vast crowd of thousands was told to sit down in this grassy area where the come to plead for healing. Next, Yeshua is said to have looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Now, why is Yeshua looking up to heaven? Because he's doing what he always does and what he always instructs us to do. He's glorifying the Father. Yeshua is making what in Hebrew is called a bercha. The Hebrew word used is eulogio. The Greek lexicons explain that it means to consecrate a thing with solemn prayers, to offer praise. Now, When he breaks the bread during the berakah, it's a rather standard Jewish way at a meal for praising the Father for the provision of food. It is possible that he recited a blessing that was, or soon became, typical. And used to this day, Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And I tell you this because it is not that by breaking the bread that Jesus began a process of preparing smaller portions in order to parcel it out to the many individuals and families. Rather, the berkah is one of a ceremonial ritual that he had no doubt recited hundreds of times. Yeshua hands the baskets of food back to the disciples who were then ordered to distribute it to the hungry crowd. So when exactly did the miracle of multiplication happen? We're not told how it transpired. Just as with the foot washing and other acts Jesus did with his disciples to teach them important principles. The disciples should by now have realized their master was no mere prophet or tzaddik. Not only was Christ's divine character on display, it also revealed that a, a disciple's truest job is to serve people on Yeshua's behalf. Serve people. Even the food that got multiplied came from them. It came from the disciples. They were the ones who brought the loaves and the fishes. They were the ones tasked with handing it out. But now the question comes, is there any significance or symbolism as regards the five loaves and the two fishes? That is, do the numbers five and two in Hebrew gematria play a role? And my answer is, I don't know. I also don't think that the food items of bread and fish are the issue. Because these were just staple food items for the people of the Galilee. It would have been unexpected if the food consisted of something else. But when we think of all that Yeshua has taught, all that he stands for. One thought that does come to mind is that perhaps, just perhaps, the five loaves is symbolic of the five books of Torah and two represents the two greatest commandments of the Torah, to love God with all of our mind and strength and to love our fellow man as we love ourselves. Now, Both of these things were clearly being demonstrated. In Christ's actions. I confess this just might be an allegorical interpretation, but it's just hard for me to dismiss it as something we aren't meant to take from this story. In the end, the people are more than satisfied. There's even much left over. The message is clear. God has no limits on the abundance He can supply. He wants to shower His worshipers in abundance. See, but this sort of message only erupts into daily reality for everyone at the entry into the messianic kingdom of God at the end of the age. Good, righteous people are going to go hungry. And this is an earth that is not presently God's kingdom. It's Satan's realm. even so as christ's disciples we are to help provide for those who don't have enough to eat and always this obligation begins with and is prioritized for god's people and those who are grafted in but it certainly doesn't exclude those who are yet to discover god's truth and his grace well we'll continue in matthew chapter 14 next week